Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Bowery Boys, episode 195, Midnight in Times Square, New York on New Year's Eve. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And tonight we are going to place our focus on perhaps the one day of the year that people outside of the city direct their attention onto New York City. That day is December 31st, the celebration of New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve in New York is an event that draws hundreds of thousands of cheering attendees to the block surrounding Times Square. And millions more as spectators watch from home via their television. I saw a statistic, Greg, that an estimated one billion people watch the, watch the big celebration on TV. Millions and millions of people around the world focus their attention on New York, although a lot of other major cities, of course, have huge parties, especially London and Melbourne and many others. There's something about the way that the tradition has started in Times Square that makes it kind of a unique custom worldwide. In today's show, we're going to talk about, of course, the origins of the Times Square celebration, but we're also going to talk about what happened at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve before Times Square even existed. This will be an intriguing podcast for us, Tom, for we're going to go from very serious moments for the celebration has been affected by major world events like World War II, for instance, but we're also going to be dipping our toe a little bit into pop culture for the celebration, of course, ties in music and dancing and of course lots of celebrities and it wouldn't be a big bowery boys roundup if we didn't trip and fall into the more difficult story of new york in the 70s and along with it what happened to that celebration so join us as we count down to this history of new year's eve in new york city
Okay, Tom, the time has come. Where are we starting this show? Obviously, it's in Times Square, right? Well, we could start in Times Square, say on December 31st, 1904, for the first big celebration that took place in Times Square proper. But I don't want to, Greg. We can't start this story there because that's, that's starting way too late. For by 1904, New York had experienced centuries of celebrating New Year's. <laughs> right. So instead of starting at the beginning of time, though, where, where more exactly, more precisely in the story are we starting? Well, well let's start with the Dutch. Okay, so okay. We, let's just roll back very quickly to the 17th century. We have the Dutch. They bring over a New Year's tradition of really sort of mending ties um, and fresh starts, if you will. That's what New Year's really signified. And it still does to us today, right? I mean, if you think about New Year's, you think about what? Resolutions. Yes, and shaking the bad year off. The Dutch brought over a tradition of spending not New Year's Eve, but New Year's Day going around and visiting people who maybe they had slighted or maybe things had taken a bad turn over the course of the year. And they and they sought to kind of repair relations. So New Year's Day was actually like a way to mend fences, unlike today where it's mostly for hangovers. <laughs> right, where you might be like propped over the fence. <laughs> no, this, they were celebrating New Year's day. And and actually, into the English period, there would be a new tradition of the New Year's visits. This was, again, something that took place on New Year's Day, where you'd go around and visit people. It was less, I think, to ask for forgiveness or to start things afresh. It was more of a society event to get around and to make calls on people. People went around town and visited people to sort of catch up. It was a nice way to drop in. No, I've read about this custom before. It's always kind of fascinated me because I, I don't I don't understand if everyone's going out to visit people, then who's actually staying in their house to receive them? That's a very good question. I think that mostly it was the men who were going out to visit and the ladies who were staying behind to receive the visitors. Oh, it had like refreshments and things, I'm sure, right. prepared. And drinks. And they had their hair done very, very early in the morning and would even sleep in place, I read, as to not upset their bouffants. But their gentlemen callers would arrive, the, the young men who were out on the hunt, if you will, would, would sort of take off from their homes at 10 a.m. on New Year's Day. Imagine any young men on the hunt in New York taking off at 10 a.m. on New Year's Day. These days. It's it not going to so happen. It sounds so respectable. Well, I think that it would quickly lose that uh, veneer of respectability for the whole point was to visit as many people as possible over the course of that day. They would even hand a list to their carriage drivers and say, here's the list. I need to go from this house to this house to this house. Why the carriage driver? Because he was having a drink with all of these ladies, or perhaps their mothers as well. So you can imagine, if you start at 10 a.m., I mean, think of, think of those poor Santas during SantaCon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of like Scavenger Hunt meets The Bachelor. <laughs> meets Downton Abbey. Okay, sure. And this would remain a tradition in the city through the early 20th century. So during the 19th century, gentlemen callers were going around on New Year's Day. I think that we need to resurrect this tradition. All right, we'll bring that back after we bring back Evacuation Day on November 25th. Okay, we'll have a list list of old-timey holidays that we will reinstate. That's a certainly fine traditional custom for New Year's Day, but they were having some kind of celebration the night before, right? Well, to be sure, people did, you know, often mark the event, but it could be in the presence of their own home. Don't forget that many people didn't have clocks uh, that were very reliable. So the easiest way to know that it was, in fact, midnight would be 
to listen to the bells of Trinity Church. So that was sort of a focal point, a gathering place for the masses along the streets around Wall Street and in front of Trinity Church on Broadway. People would go down and they would wait and they would sort of celebrate in the streets and they'd wait for the chimes and the bells to ring at midnight. So in a way, it was kind of like the Times Square celebration, just a lot more genteel. Well, not necessarily, because from the reports that I read, people would already show up drunk. They'd get drunker in the streets and its surrounding saloons and taverns. And before long, bricks would start flying in the air. Bricks? Bricks, cobblestones, you know, pavement stones. Rowdies. The rowdies were coming out. Well, they were having a good time, and they were kind of bored, and they were waiting for the church bells. That was throughout much of the 19th century. Right. There were some more genteel better behaved events as well, including, very notably, on December 31st, 1897, when crowds gathered at City Hall Park to celebrate not just the new year, but what was about to happen at the stroke of midnight, that being the consolidation of the city of New York. Probably the most important beginning of a new year ever in New York for the consolidation of these different areas that would become the other boroughs. And so it would become the city of greater New York. And which ended up being, of course, the biggest party that they would have downtown, because that was 1898, correct? Right, 1897 into January 1st of 98, yes. But then just a few years later, of course, it would move all the way uptown to uh, 42nd Street. And it's funny because what would take us uptown would be the arrival uptown of a business that was also right there on City Hall Park for the New York Times would move up to Longacre Square, the intersection of Broadway and 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, which was really a center of the carriage industry up until that point. And we've talked about this in lots of other shows. The New York Times would decide to move all the way up to 42nd Street from Park Row following several different trends, following other newspapers that had left Newspaper Row there on Park Row, uh, like the New York Herald, which had moved up to 34th Street and had that intersection named for it, Herald Square. And the New York Times looked around and thought, well, yeah, it seems that the city is on the move. A new development popping up in Midtown on the west side, on the Upper East and Upper West Side. It seems that the city's going farther north. And they, the Times, wanted to be right in the middle of all of it because they didn't just have the editorial offices. They also had the presses in the basement. And this was the direction that entertainment was going, and the, the Broadway stage was heading up that direction and all the cabarets. Right. Um, we've talked about that in the Birth of Broadway show, that at that point, at 1900, the theater district was really between Herald Square and today's Times Square. So it was creeping up Broadway. So it seemed like a natural fit for them. And they, they designed a building right there on that little wedge of land, this little triangle between 42nd and 43rd, a wedge made from the funny inner section of Broadway and 7th Avenue. There had been a nine-story hotel on the spot, uh, but they ripped it down and they built a 25-story, 430-foot-tall office building, gave it a very ornate facade. It was beautiful. I think that it looked a lot like the Flatiron Building with the lovely Beaux-Arts facade. And Well, it was Italian Renaissance, so it had the similarities to the Flatiron, certainly, and certainly not that far. It was on the same street. And it was also a wedge. I guess that's what made, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the photos and you say, well, that looks like the Flatiron. But their fates would be very different. Four. <laughs> that is very true. When the Times Building went up, it was the second largest in the city. So I guess by the effect of moving up there and being this big newspaper in an area that had not been completely overdeveloped with tall skyscrapers, I guess that was the reason they renamed it Times Square? 
The simple answer is yes. But there are a couple conflicting reports on that. But Adolf Ox, who was the publisher, had become the publisher in 1896, he had asked Mayor George McClellan to rename the, the square after the paper. However, according to the official report in the New York Times, they make it sound like the city renamed this Longacre Square Times Square because of the subway opening, yes. because of the station that was effectively in the building's basement, that if they continued to just call it 42nd Street, that would be confusing because that first line of the subway um, went up to Grand Central, which was 42nd Street, and then made its way across 42nd to Longacre Square. So the Times made it sound like it was actually August Belmont uh, who owned the Interborough Rapid Transit Company. Who named who, it. Who right. named it right after the paper. And the building would be completed in 1904, and they decided to throw a big party for the completion of the building and for the relocation of the newspaper to this square that had just been renamed for the newspaper. So they had a lot to celebrate. But they were around a lot of restaurants and hotels that were developing around the area, so it made sense to have a party here. Oh, yeah, and the theaters. People were just packing already into the stretch of Broadway. And the proof is that 200,000 people would come on that December 31st. They had live music, bands playing in the streets, and just at midnight, fireworks shot off from the base of the buildings. Fireworks? Imagine seeing fireworks over a city that didn't have a lot of skyscrapers, so you could actually see the fireworks, right? Oh, it sounds magnificent, but imagine having 200,000 people actually crammed into Times Square and fireworks exploding all over the place. Mm -hmm. It was... It was actually a little bit chaotic, and in fact, they rained ash down on the thousands of people beneath them. So, One of many reasons why we don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the cleanest way to ring in the new year. But the next day's paper, January 1st, 1905, would be the first edition that would actually be published in that new building. So they really did a wonderful, marvelous job of logisticating on this, if you will. Kicking the whole thing off. I didn't know it was the very next day. So those are fireworks, but of course, we know the celebration better for this gigantic orb, the ball that drops. Well, that wouldn't come for a couple years. They would continue, you know, with the, the fireworks, but it was quickly deemed, unsurprisingly, to be too dangerous. And they had to come up with another way to signify the moment of midnight, you know, because the fireworks were effectively doing that. (laughs) They were telling people, this is the moment when these like (laughs) blasts are going off. So they had to come up with another way to do that. And Ox, the New York Times publisher, took inspiration from a tradition that had been developed by, by ships. It was a maritime tradition of lowering a ball at noon to tell other seafaring captains that it was, in fact, noon to allow them to set their watches because they were being guided, right, by the sun. That would later be replaced by self-winding watches. More fashionable, right, certainly. But, but less fun. I mean, there's drama in a ball drop. <laughs> and, and it became a thing in cities. You know, an official ball drop, it kept everybody in town on the same time. And in 1877, the Western Union office in New York at Broadway and Day actually had a ball drop of their own installed. So Adolph Ox, the, the publisher of the Times, looks to the ball drop and to the recent installation of electricity in New York and kind of combines the two of those together 
with this idea to drop an electrified ball on top of his building. Which, of course, being the second tallest building, would be seen for miles around. And, and could be seen by hundreds of thousands of people in the streets around it. So he had this massive 700 pound ball, this illuminated globe built of wood and iron. Um, it was designed by Strauss Signs and equipped with 125 watt bulbs. So on December 31st, 1907, this team lowered Strauss's glowing globe down the pole, which was actually the old main mast of the battleship USS New Mexico. It had to be specially hauled up there for this very occasion, lowered it down, signaling in 1908. 1908 kicks off the Times Square tradition that we know today, which is people gathering to look at this ball as it rings in the new year. Now, interestingly, this celebration would, of course, be started by the New York Times, would be centered around the New York Times building, and would be in a plaza named for the New York Times. However, they would soon actually fade from this picture. For in 1913, those offices just weren't adequate enough for this growing paper, so they just moved a very short distance to 229 West 43rd Street. Right, because I guess the New York Times can't leave Times Square. No. Well, except that it would 100 years later, but it couldn't at the time. Not at that time. They would stay there until 2007. Now, these parties, they were annual, of course, and they started getting larger and a little bit rowdier. The first one was mostly men in tuxes, but as these parties progressed, as a party would do, as the reputation precedes itself, they get a little rowdier. There was an immoral aspect to this that certain social activists, namely the grand old icon Jacob Rees was definitely against. He thought this was promoting bad morals and bad sanitary conditions. Well, I don't even want to think of what the bathroom situation was oh. at this point. <laughs> in, 19, but... <laughs> in the 1910s. Well, Jacob would promote so-called sane festivals, which would be his... Some of them were down in Union Square. The ones that I read were focused around there. They would be, of course, sober functions featuring choral groups singing patriotic songs because who doesn't find that a party atmosphere, right? <laughs> so, well, but hold on. I mean, in all fairness, there's a transition in the 20th century as it becomes a celebration in public the night before, right? Mm -hmm. New Year's Day. And it's no longer about like thoughtful relationship building activities on, on New Year's Day <laughs> right. That's true. itself. Well, the problem with his sane festivals is, of course, after midnight, these crowds would actually just spread out throughout the city and would intermingle with the Union Square Sober Festival. And it would no longer be so sober, let's It'd just be say. Infiltrated. Yes. Now, by the 1920s, Times Square, of course, was lit up with all these electronic signs, right? I mean, Times Square is becoming a little bit the neighborhood that we're familiar with as this uh, entertainment district. The streets were buzzing with dozens of shows and restaurants. But wait, 1920s, that's also prohibition, right? Uh, yes, ironically enough. Now that Times Square seems ready for a party like this and... Banning alcohol, of course, tempered the celebration severely. Well, there were definitely dozens of speakeasies in the surrounding blocks. You know, the party still raged on in there, of course, a little bit more quietly. Of course, though, when Prohibition is repealed on December 6, 1933... 
alcohol comes roaring back into the equation here. So that New Year's Eve was the biggest celebration since the early 1910s with approximately, I've read a wide range of numbers between 400,000 to 750,000 people to ring in the year 1933. Well, that certainly sounds like a party, but it also sounds potentially dangerous. Yeah, the the newspapers actually made note that only a few people were sent to Bellevue Hospital for alcohol poisoning, and only a couple had died. Well, that's depressing, and it's the Depression. <laughs> it is the Depression. In the 1930s, you have a lot to drink about. Many people are happy to celebrate the end of the years as they go through the 1930s. And the hope of something better coming. Right. But in a way, the 1930s is also the golden age of the New Year's Eve celebration, thanks to the radio. Radio broadcasts, which had debuted in the 1920s, revolutionized this holiday because all of a sudden Americans could count down together with a group of strangers, right? So it wasn't just you in a room looking at one object. You could actually listen as other people in all sorts of different places as they celebrated the very same thing at the same time, if you were in the same time zone, that is. Right. Now, one of the most popular individuals, thanks to radio and thanks to New Year's Eve, was the band leader from Canada, Guy Lombardo, one of the best-known radio personalities. And he would have live New Year's Eve broadcasts at the Roosevelt Hotel that started in 1928. That hotel is at 45th and Madison. He would be associated with New Year's Eve through his entire career until he died in the 1970s. And he'd move hotels, though. Yeah, he would later go on to the Waldorf Astoria, for instance. Um, He would even move on to television in the 1950s. I mean, he was the... He was still broadcasting from the Waldorf. The celebration really expanded in the 1930s in some unusual ways. For instance, women began appearing in larger numbers. Before this time, it was considered a man's holiday. You can mm. imagine that, you know, in the, especially in the 1910s, to have like groups of men standing around, possibly imbibed. It wasn't the right place for a woman of that time. But in the 1930s, Women are feeling a lot more comfortable. They're going out in groups. And so they're now participating in this alongside men. So you have more people showing up for this thing, but what are they watching? Today, when we watch it, we see concerts, we see music, there there are different things happening. There's Ryan Seacrest. What were they watching? (laughs) Well, that's interesting. They kind of weren't watching anything. Watching their wallets. Yeah, exactly. But there was no central performance like there is today, or there wasn't a reason to get there much earlier than an hour before midnight. In fact, sometimes like on December 31st, like it would be 10 o'clock and they would still be be sort of sparsely attended, Mm. sparsely filled. It would only start collecting after 11 p.m. because these people were actually partying in the local hotels and restaurants. Oh, so they'd spill out of their dinner and their dancing and into the streets of Times Square. I mean, the hotel scene is much bigger back in the 1930s than it is today. I mean, there are hotels in Times Square, obviously, but it's a more tourist-focused industry where back then you went to these hotels as your night out. So you kind of like retreated back to the hotel after midnight. And this all sounds fun and gay, but I imagine that it must have been affected in the 1940s with World War II. I would imagine there just weren't as many men around as well to celebrate. That also, although a lot of times these parties would have a lot of servicemen there, like oh, during sure, the war during during the war years, 
But it is true that the celebrations took on a much more tempered feel, a much more sobered feel, of course. In fact, in 1941, the, in the weeks after Pearl Harbor, the city almost canceled the Times Square festivities. And, you know, there was a lot of fear and paranoia that was going on at, at the time. I mean, we can all relate to this, I think, in modern terms. To quote a letter from the New York Times in December 22nd, 1941, quote, One can imagine the havoc that would result from a bomb dropped by a plane in Times Square during a New Year's Eve celebration. The possibility of a token raid on New York is not remote, as the Germans could send over a few planes loaded with light bombs which could be dropped, and the pilots descend at nearby fields as prisoners of war, unquote. So there were even plans for air raids in the surrounding hotels and hundreds of additional police and firemen and st- stationed in hotels around the area. Did, did, did people still show up? Were there still crowds during these wartime years? Believe it or not, there were still crowds, even though by the following year, they would impose a blackout. And the same would happen for ringing in the next year of 1944. But there would be large crowds there still. I mean, there were still people who wanted to celebrate, who wanted to sort of like let the fears of the day aside for at least an evening. And I suppose the celebration had, by that point, also taken on kind of a patriotic air unto itself. It was becoming a symbolically American celebration as well. It is. That is true. Although I did read one report ominously that described the 1943 celebration as being, quote, zombie-like. So it was certainly affected by the war. But at the war's end, of course, on August 14th, 1945, well, that was perhaps the most famous gathering of all Mm. ever in Times Square was, of course, the ending of the war. And that New Year's Eve, of course, was a riotous celebratory affair. But post-war, of course, and into the 1950s, the U.S. would be blessed with that great glowing little box in the corners of many homes. Yeah, and believe it or not, the television, of course, would transform the event even more. And television broadcasters would be there almost from the very invention of the box itself. The very first New Year's Eve that was covered on television was December 31st, 1949 by NBC, which aired a very short program, 11.45 p.m. to 5 after 12. And it was <laughs> a 20 minute <laughs> yeah. New Year's Eve special. Oh, it gets better. It was because I don't know if you would want to see this. The host for more than 20 minutes It was ventriloquist Paul Winchell <laughs> and his wooden co-star Jerry Mahoney. Now, Tom, you might know Paul Winchell, for he would later in the 1980s be the voice of Gargamel on the Smurfs TV show. Really? Yes. Um, Wait, don't throw me off with the Smurfs, Greg. (laughs) He was he was hosting New Year's Eve with with a dummy, with a wooden dummy, with Jerry. Yeah, I mean, and they would it would be broadcast on television. So was the dummy doing the countdown? I, I can I can only imagine that was the reason the dummy was there. Okay, we need to talk to somebody <laughs> at NBC about. I this. would like to see this footage. It's true, but by the throughout the 1950s, of course, there would be a lot of television shows. It would be a, a very popular thing that would be broadcast into American homes. How exciting to see New York City at this period. 
And of course, there would still be radio shows as well. And CBS's New Year's Eve dancing party throughout the 1950s would feature Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong in hotels around New York, and of course, broadcast from other cities as well. And of course, Guy Lombardo as well. Guy was still on, still going strong. Because he would be referred to as sort of, you know, what Santa Claus is to Christmas Eve, Guy Lombardo was to New Year's Eve. Now, of course, some years it would be very severe weather. And so one of the kind of remarkable things about this event is that people show up anyway, right? Right. Even through terrible weather. And they think they're going to get a better spot. Yeah, I mean, they do by like a foot of snow sometimes. Uh, On New Year's Day of 1953, they were greeted with wet snowstorm, but there were still 200,000 people that showed up, you know, down from a million, but still a lot of people. But of course, the custodians of Times Square during New Year's Eve would have greater issues at hand as New York would enter the 1960s and the 1970s and would gradually become a much more different place, a more dangerous and grittier place. So just what happens when you throw the biggest party in America in one of the seediest places in New York? We'll let you know how that turned out after the commercial. And now... Back to the show. It weighs 200 pounds. It's got 158 lights. It had burned for 6,000 years, that ball. But in just a few short seconds, it will denote 1977. In 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, happy 1977! On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. 
But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Well, Greg, we're in the 1960s now at Times Square, New Year's. And by 1961, one Times Square, that building that had been the Times office building Mm -hmm. before they had moved, that was no longer controlled by the New York Times. It was now owned by Douglas Lee, who was a developer who was responsible for uh, many of the most iconic billboards, neon billboards, animated billboards at Times Square, including the camel billboard, you know, that blew the smoke rings out of it. Yeah, he's the icon of that particular field. Well, he controlled this building and he decided to give it a new look, to redevelop it for the Allied Chemical Company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, which essentially meant ripping out all of that beautiful trim and all the the facade the facade essentially yeah, right. he did more than give it a facelift he just like took off the face <laughs> yeah. he he ripped it off down to its uh, steel skeleton and then applied a, a, a white marble facade over the top of it so it transformed it into this sort of modernist kind of futuristic building that is still there today yeah it's basically a mannequin i mean everyone's looking at it it's wearing all of these signs but it's essentially pretty much an empty building. But he kept the party at the top of the building because, of course, by this point, there were hundreds of thousands of people coming, right, to celebrate. He kept the party going and going into the 1970s. Now, in 1972, something interesting happened because a a group of TV producers got together and they said, look, the big show that people are watching from home is Guy Lombardo and his show being broadcast live from the ballroom at the Waldorf Astoria, which is really nice and everything, but that is an aging audience who's watching Mm -hmm. that. And it's 1972. It's kind of hard to watch people dancing cheek to cheek and draw like huge ratings, right? So Dick Clark, who had been in the TV show American Bandstand since 1956, he starred in and helped produce uh, a New Year's Eve special that took place both at Times Square and also with pre-recorded music that had been taped out in California, in Long Beach, California. But Clark was in Times Square recording interviews with merrymakers in the streets. This special was called Three Dog Nights New Year's Rockin' Eve. Ooh, joy to the world. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yes. That three dog night, they were the headline act on December 31st, 1972, with Dick Clark in Times Square talking to people. The next year, it was George Carlin 
who was hosting in California, and Dick Clark still in New York. And the next year, 1974, would be Clark's first year hosting really the entire event from Times Square. So this really kicked off Times Square as an actual setting for a TV show. I mean, it, I guess the others had been hosting around it from hotels, right? And and even cutting to Times Square for part of the celebration. But it was Dick Clark who on ABC was really selling the Times Square celebration as a central celebrations for Americans to tune into not just a city, but mm-hmm. an entire country to watch. So the, the country had really two big choices. They could watch Guy Lombardo until 1977, when he would pass away, or Dick Clark with these younger, poppier celebrations over on ABC. And after Lombardo died, they did one last show, but it was clear that that era had run its course, and Dick Clark took over as the prominent entertainment for the nation on New Year's Eve. So this was the sort of prime activity in in terms of Times Square in the 1960s and 1970s, is that right? Well, I think that that's a bit of an overstatement because people were also celebrating in other ways. A lot of people headed out to celebrate, obviously, just like today. I mean, think about how we celebrate New Year's Eve if we're here in the city. We don't necessarily go to Times Square. We certainly watch it at the stroke of midnight, but a lot of times there are parties and things. In the 60s and in the 70s, people had other ways to celebrate as well, of course. First of all, um, and I'm embarrassed that we didn't mention this earlier, some people went to church on New Year's Mm -hmm. Eve. Churches all over town had New Year's Eve services, St. Patrick's, Trinity, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian. Or, of course, there was still that sort of old-time ballroom dancing that was still going on at the Waldorf Astoria, right? The, well, the Waldorf. Hotels, right? right, and you could anybody could buy tickets for that. Like the Waldorf in 1968, you could get tickets for $45 to $55 per person. That included dinner, champagne, and dancing. You paid more to be closer to Guy Lombardo. Meanwhile, the Plaza, the same year, they had tickets for $50, so it was slightly cheaper. But meanwhile, the Rainbow Room at the top of Rockefeller Center, they were not charged anything premium. They didn't have a special New Year's Eve menu. They suggested in their statement to the New York Times that the view didn't change on New Year's, and so neither should their menu. <laughs> well, that's maybe where I would have gone in my wide lapeled tuxedo. In, in the 1968. Late- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think actually you might have headed over to Roseland, Greg. Mm, yeah. Which that same year, 1968, was offering $6 admission uh, to go inside and dance with other young things in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Roseland. The Roseland. I love the Roseland, which was just demolished this year. But this is all ballroom dancing. Let's now move on to maybe disco dancing, or rather the trendier things that were happening with Dick Clark over in Times Square, where things perhaps were not swinging in other regards, I guess. Right, because, okay, that first year with Dick Clark and the big TV celebration with Three Dog Night was 1972. It sounds all, you know, fun and games. It sounds like everybody wanted to be there. But Times Square in the 1970s had some issues, you know? Just take the fact that police estimated that in 1952, 1952, Greg, during the golden age after World War II, one million people were estimated to have attended Times Square for New Year's. 25 years later, 1977, there were only an estimated 50,000 who showed up. Probably one of the smallest attended, it sounds like, right? 950,000 people less than the 1952. 
where were these 950,000 people? Why had they decided to not show up at Times Square? It's not so straightforward. It's a collection of things. There were crime issues, some quality of life issues, making people more hesitant, pickpockets, prostitutes. But also, I think, you know, kind of like a change in how people were even thinking about Times Square as the center point of the city. It got so bad that the owner of one Times Square, he protested by turning off the new zipper and like turning off all the lights on the building. The article says, quote, the moving light news sign at one Times Square after it was turned off yesterday to protest crime and pornography in the area. Alex Parker, owner of the building, said that the sign would remain dark and the dropping of the New Year's Eve ball would be ended unless he gets 100,000 signatures on a petition demanding that the area be cleaned up. The sign and dropping of the ball cost Mr. Parker $300,000 a year, he said. Quote, and I'm not going to spend another penny to entertain pimps, prostitutes, and criminals. But nothing of Dick Clark. No, well, meanwhile, Dick Clark is there, right? But mm-hmm. that's this is the other side of the story. In 1978, with Dick Clark, you know, hosting the event in Times Square, there were many, many robberies and assaults that were reported by the police. And there had been only 500 police stationed in Times Square that year. So the next year, in 1979, the police department nearly doubled their force to 900 placed on duty at Times Square alone. And would almost keep to that number and, of course, even increase as the years progress here. In 1976, the city famously almost went bankrupt, and they were forced to cut back on non-essential programming and expenses, including in 1976 when the city slashed the budget on another option that one had on New Year's Eve, which was to celebrate in Central Park. Did you know that there was a Central Park event. Uh, Yeah, it went on for about 10 years from the late 60s into the late 70s. Yeah, I don't think I would have wanted to celebrate in Central Park in the late 70s. Oh, Greg, but wait, (laughs) can you imagine? In 1976, you could have gathered with nearly 10,000 New Yorkers to celebrate with fireworks, juggling, performance art, and dancing, starting, in fact, at Rockefeller Center at 1030 at night with a parade led by two conceptual artists, one representing the angel of the Bethesda fountain and the other representing the changing year as they walked (laughs) up 6th Avenue to Central Park. And just in case things got dark when you got inside the park, there were 10 people who were dressed as, quote, large white hands wandering through the crowd with flares. (laughs) And once they got there, there was a funky version of Old Lang Syne. I'm surprised that hipsters haven't brought that back yet as a tradition. <laughs> it sounds amazing, right? So they're like dressed like hamburger helper, like gigantic hands, <laughs> white hands. Yes, hamburger helper walking up Sixth Avenue into Central Park at midnight. Wow, well, help you make a great party. Well, the New York Rock and Eve that's going on here, like mm-hmm. during the, it's becoming a little bizarre because things are getting a little tense, not only in Times Square but in the world, and of course it's festooned with pop culture figures on the show, correct, who are like hosting and bringing in the new year. Like, for instance, on December 31st, 1980, bringing in 1981, the Dukes of Hazard's Catherine Bach, Daisy Duke, was a host of one of these uh, New Year's Eve celebrations. Which year? December 31st, 1980. Well, two minutes before midnight, 
the entire crowd observed a moment of silence for the 55 hostages that were held at the American embassy in Tehran by the supporters of the Ayatollah Khomeini in the, during the Iranian revolution, right? So this is the Wait, world. Wait, there was a moment of silence and then they cut back to Daisy Duke? Yes. So the show's a little awkward, right? Especially here in the late 70s, early 80s. Adding a bit more sort of absurdity to the whole thing in 1982, that ball drop, the ball was actually transformed into a gigantic apple. Oh, right. During the I Heart New York campaign. Yeah, that campaign which started in 1977 was incorporated here finally when they turned the ball for several years, for much of the 80s, into a gigantic apple with red lights and a green stem. Well, as we've discussed before, in the early 1990s, the cleanup of Times Square begins in earnest with these initiatives by the mayors David Dinkins and Rudy Giuliani. There had been fairly low attendance to these New Year's Eve celebrations. People started to come back starting in the 1990s. As a result, as, it, as the reputation of Times Square improved, as it seemed like a, a more family-friendly place mm-hmm. in many ways, the TV networks who had been maybe relegated to hotels and to buildings around Times Square and were reporting like correspondence into Times Square were now actually decided to actually base the event in Times Square itself. Like so it made, fewer cutaways and more just the, the, the show is yes. there. I mean, most notably, obviously, is when ABC actually moved to Times Square in 1999. And ABC was the producer of Dick Clark's Rock and Eve. Uh-huh. So, so they were finally in Times Square. Right next to the one Times Square building. Yeah, perfectly placed. From the ABC studio there, you could look up to the top of the building, but what did they see? Were they, they certainly weren't still dropping that old ball from 1907. Oh, no, they had to upgrade that, of course. I mean, like, we're like, it's now the internet age, Tom. So, the, Ooh, internet. So in 1996, they had a new ball with 12,000 rhinestones and 180 halogen lights and 144 strobes on the ball. Well, then, notably, Y2K... Tom, yes. so with the with the arrival of the year 2000, when we all were afraid that our computers were going to stop working, remember all that? Um, the ball was again replaced with one covered in Waterford crystals and 600 halogen bulbs and 504 triangle-shaped crystal panels. So some serious bling was being dangled in front of the crowd here. It was the largest crystal ball in the world. That I remember. <laughs> And now the streets were being filled for hours before the event. You know how I said earlier, like people would just kind of show up at 11. Right. Now the whole plaza would be closed off for many hours beforehand. Well, starting in 1979, they'd actually introduced more aggressive barriers to the streets to really direct the flow of pedestrians in the plaza to make it, you know, to make it safer and easier for the police to govern, but it certainly makes it more difficult for the pedestrians who are attending. It certainly makes it, yeah, very difficult to get out because there's only very specific spots to leave. As anybody listening who's attended knows, it can be very difficult to get in or out. Now, on December 31st, 2001, the celebration was more of a, obviously, a patriotic gathering due to the events just a few months before on September 11th, 2001, with the attack on the World Trade Center. The ball itself literally reflected that, for the ball was now covered, at least 195 of the 504 crystals 
were engraved by artisans um, with the names of the countries and regions of the world that had lost people in the attacks and other memorials to the to September 11th. Believe it or not, some of the crystals from that ball you can still see at the 9-11 Memorial Museum today. I should also add that that particular ball drop was the final duty for the mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. And Tom, the incredible thing, that 2001, there were 7,000 police officers in the Times Square area, or probably at least in that area of Midtown. You know, and to this day, since 2001, the security has been very, very high for this particular event. So that crystal ball, the world's largest crystal ball that was coming down, but is that the same ball uh, that drops today? No. So there was another ball, and then they got rid of that ball. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of balls. Lots of New Year's balls. Galas. Literally lots of balls in the air. But in 2009, (laughs) the largest was introduced, which is a sphere lit by over 32,000 LED lamps. And it contains 2,688 Waterford crystal panels. It weighs almost 12,000 pounds. And the most important thing about this one is it's weatherproof. So since 2009, they just leave the ball on top of the building. So when you go there today... You can see it. You can actually see it. They don't take it down. It's, right. not, it's not a seasonal decoration. It's something that's up year-round. And it's lit year-round, too. And because it's LED, they can do all kinds of fun things. They can put all kinds of colors representing different events. It's become multifunctional. Like everything else about Times Square, the New Year's Eve celebration is completely unrecognizable if you were had been there for some reason at the beginning, at the very first one. In 1904. Right. The, with, between the mass security and the one million people to all these outdoor performances and, of course, this multimedia worldwide show beamed all over the world. You know, Dick Clark has, of course, passed on, but the baton has passed to people like Ryan Seacrest and... Anderson Cooper and Kathy Griffin. One final note, it would be disrespectful if I didn't mention the Department of Sanitation, who every year goes down there and cleans up hundreds of tons of confetti and all the detritus of thousands of people. In fact, last year it was 178 workers who used 26 mechanical brooms, 25 trucks, 38 leaf blowers to clean five tons of trash. So thank you to the Department of Sanitation for helping us clean the slate of that old nasty (laughs) year and ring in the new year. By the way, Tom, I've never, I don't think I know this. Have you been to the Times Square New Year's Eve celebration? Well, I think I've celebrated most of my 22 years in New York with you, Greg. Um, Many of them, I'm sure. (laughs) Many of them. So I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I have not. I've stayed a couple miles away, although my parents did come in from Ohio and they attended Mm -hmm. Times Square while they were staying with me. Have you? Kind of. I've been to many parties around Hell's Kitchen and uh, friends who have lived around there. And we have wandered as close as we can get, but I've certainly never been in the heart of it all. And I feel... Why is that? Well, 
when you live here and it, you, after a few years, it becomes a little bit of a routine, even though it's actually something extraordinary that I think that everyone should at least do once. I also appreciate things like, you know, a bathroom nearby if I need to and a cocktail, and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And- but wait, wait, wait. But even if you don't have a bathroom or a cocktail, we do have a couple tips if you yes. are planning to visit the Times Square celebration. Yes, yeah, so it's a few tips uh, that I picked up from people and from other places. I would say, first of all, get out there early, get there quite early and scope out the barricades in particular so you know kind of where the exits are in case you need to leave, you know, because you need to go to the bathroom or for an emergency. But while you're out there and just sort of hanging out for the many hours, um, you know, just load up your mobile device on Bowery Boys podcasts or, oh. or Jessica Jones episodes on Netflix or just do something. Just enjoy your time out there with some friends. But if you don't get there early, there's a good chance that you won't even be able to see the building. You'll, right. you'll, you'll be relegated to the side streets. But if you're fine with that and you just want to hear it, you can go to a local tavern and soak up the sound of course if you do go don't bring a big bag because there's lots of security don't wear a lot of valuables and ladies do not wear expensive high heels why they might get stolen (laughs) no they might get broken as with your ankle don't drink a lot before because it'll be a while until you see the inside of a latrine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the uh, don't bring drinks, and if you you know want to drink, but also experience the mayhem. Like I said, just go to a local bar, just a couple avenues over, and experience it there. Oh, and then finally, once it's over, get the heck out of Times Square and let the Department of Sanitation do their job. And with that, we have rung in the story, the history of New York on New Year's Eve and in Times Square. For many more photos of this event. Check out the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can follow us, the Bowery Boys, on Twitter. It's just at Bowery Boys. And now we both have separate accounts. I guess we've always had them, but... Yeah, we just didn't use them. Yeah, so it's Thomas Myers. Yes. And Gregoire NYC. (laughs) (laughs) So follow us as we tweet at each other. Greg, I'm going to tweet at you tonight. Yes, maybe. Well, probably, certainly during New Year's Eve, I'm sure. To hear much more on the history of New York on New Year's Eve, we will be releasing a patron-only special for those who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys for, you know, just a couple bucks a month. You can join and listen to all of the additional bonus podcasts that go along with each of these shows. So, Thank you so much to the more than 350 patrons who have joined us thus far, and some of whom we're getting very excited to meet in just a couple of days as we have cocktails this Thursday night um, with some of our patrons. Now, although we're calling this our official holiday show for 2015, in fact, there is a show in two weeks, which we can't wait for you to hear. So have a happy holidays and a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.